We are in 1 John. John seems to be dealing with somebody who has come from, I'm assuming, Jerusalem and is sowing confusion in the churches that he has been involved with. As we said several times, we're not completely sure who this is addressed to. We're not even entirely sure that it's John, but it reads like John, so we'll take it to be John. And you remember he's sort of setting up an argument. Back in 3 verse 18, he said, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And then the next thing he says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth, we assure our heart before him. And one of the things that's flowing through this letter is love among the brethren. So when he's talking about loving someone in truth, what I asserted last time is that love is not an emotion. Love is an action. And when you love someone in truth, what that means is that your actions reflect doing things that are for the benefit of the one you love. If you have goods and your brother needs them, that kind of stuff. So it's all Torah, and in the Torah, love is not an emotion. In the Torah, love is action. And if your actions reflect love, then you are loving someone in truth. And we talked about what truth is biblically. Truth today in our Greek-oriented world comes from words. You say some words that you assert are true, and then you do logical operations on those words and the conclusions you reach are then regarded as true. That's not biblical. Biblical truth is something that matches what you expect it to be. Truth is only determined by observation. It isn't determined by speech. So then he talks about the Spirit and the Spirit of God. And so I'm going to pick it up now in 323. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Yeshua Messiah, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given to us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. So what we started off with is loving in deed and in truth. We know that his Spirit abides in us. But then he's now saying that every spirit can't be believed. One of the things I said last time is when he's talking about spirit here, remember that human beings are beings in three parts, body, soul, and spirit. So he isn't necessarily talking about ethereal spirits that float around and whisper in people's ears and do that kind of stuff. He may be talking about the spirits of people who are speaking. So in chapter 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have come out into the world. Well, a prophet is a person. So what I'm inferring from that then is what we're dealing with is the spirit of the prophet who is using the prophet's body to speak. I don't mean that in a sense that his spirit is different from him. It's his spirit is part of him, and the spirit is the part that connects with God. And if he has a false spirit, you could have a person who is giving false teaching, 
because he has a false spirit. It is not necessarily the case that it's some demon that has possessed him. His spirit may be in contact with something other than the spirit of God, and so he is speaking of his own spirit, but he is speaking things that are not true. Most people, when they read this chunk of John, are thinking about demons, spirits that are not attached to anybody. They're just sort of floating around in the ether and landing on people and making them do weird things. That could also be true, but it is not necessarily true. It could simply be that the spirit of the false prophet is making bad connections in the spirit world, and his spirit, having made a bad connection, is speaking falsehoods. One of the things John is asserting is one of the indicators of truth is the Holy Spirit that is given to believers. Now, the Holy Spirit is not your spirit. You have a spirit of your own. You also have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, two different spirits. Your spirit may, in fact, have a relationship with some other spirit that is unclean. So now you, because your spirit is not connected to the Holy Spirit, but is connected to something random, and it may simply be a human spirit that's not connected to anything, and especially is not connected to God. So a human spirit that is not connected either to God or may be connected to unclean spirits, in either case, can speak falsehood. And what John seems to be dealing with is somebody who is deliberately spreading false doctrine. So, chapter 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Yeshua Messiah has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Yeshua is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. And as we know from Revelation, Antichrist is in fact a person. And that person has a spirit. Now that person's spirit may be animated by Satan, or it may simply be a perverse human spirit that is in rebellion against God, and there's lots of those also. Now, this particular chunk gives us a clue as to what the problem is that he's addressing. And the problem seems to be this question that we started off with, that Yeshua has not come in the flesh. In other words, Yeshua is not a man, he's not human, he may be an angelic being, much like the commander of the Lord's host was at Jericho, or he may be a human being who has had the Spirit of God come down upon him. But what this heresy says is that Yeshua is not fully man and fully God. That seems to be the thing he's dealing with. And what flavor of that he's dealing with isn't entirely clear. Verse 2 again. So, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Yeshua Messiah has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Yeshua is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. 
for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I think that is pretty clear. We're talking about the Holy Spirit versus unclean spirits. Verse 5. They are from the world. Now notice we've gotten swapped again here. What we seem to be talking about is he who is in the world seems to me to be a spiritual being. But then he talks about they. So they are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. That seems to be talking about people, most likely the ones who have been spreading false doctrine. Verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So what he's asserting is whoever these false prophets are, they don't listen to him, and they're not from God. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. It isn't clear that those spirits, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, are personal spirits. They may be attitudes. Antichrist doesn't necessarily mean against Christ. It means in place of Christ. So an Antichrist is someone who's come into the world claiming to be the Messiah himself. Now the spirit of Antichrist will lead people to deny Christ, but it doesn't necessarily lead them to say that they themselves are Christ. So what he's asserting here is whoever knows God listens to us, which is to say John. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. They argue against us. And then by this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In other words, the spirit that animates us is a truthful spirit, whether it's my personal human spirit or Holy Spirit beside me, we speak the truth. These folks, whether through their own human spirit or unclean spirits beside them, speak error. And the way you can tell that is they disagree with me. So now we're back to loving one another. Remember we started back in chapter 3 about loving in deed and truth. And so now what we're going to do is come back to that, verse 7 in chapter 4. Let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, what I said earlier is love is an action, not an emotion. And so what God has done is taken some action, which is to say he sent his son down among us. He did something. It is not the case that God is just sort of sitting up there ethereally saying, Oh, yeah, I really love you guys. Oh, wow, love you. Yeah. Great, love you guys. No, he took some concrete action. And he took concrete action in the Old Testament. He bestowed blessing. He also bestowed consequences when Israel violated the covenant. So what God does is he displays love by action, which is what we should do. So verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, 
not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God's love is manifest through action, blessing, consequences when we go astray, those are both acts of love, and finally sending his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So if God loved us by his actions, we also ought to be loving each other by our actions. If you truly love God, then you will act out his love in the world. You will also keep his commandments. Two chunks of that, if you will. Spreading his love abroad by actions in the world and you yourself keeping his commandments. So 12 again. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us. First, he has given us of his spirit. And then second, that we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. We, in this case now, is John, not the addressees of the letter. Because remember, John started off the letter by saying, I have met Yeshua, I've seen him, I have talked to him, I have touched him, and I have witnessed all that he did. So he is saying, in this case, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. John has seen and testifies to that. He is writing the letter to people who are perhaps not sure about it. So verse 15, whoever confesses that Yeshua is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. When you abide in God, you keep his commandments and show the love of God in the world. That's what abiding in God practically means. One of the things that a lot of people, I think, stumble in is they think that all of this is a mental exercise. If I profess love and if I love in my heart and all that kind of stuff, then I've nailed it. No. You have to physically keep his commandments as best you can, and you have to physically show the love of God to the people around you. It's not some gooey emotional thing that is simply inside of your heart. It is action. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So in verse 17, by this is love perfected, that we have confidence for the day of judgment, which is to say we do not fear punishment. And then he says here, perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So if you are afraid of punishment, then you are not loving God. Remember we said 
God has manifested his love by his actions. He expects us to manifest our love by our actions. And if you're doing that, then you need not fear judgment. The Bible tells us all over the place to fear not. I take that to be this world that we live in is temporary. Our true home is the world to come. And there's going to be stuff that's going to happen to you as you go through this world. But if you're going through this world with God, then you know that ultimately it is going to be all right and you need not be afraid. In this context, what he's talking about is you've been left here as a servant. As a servant who is doing what his master wants him to do, you need not fear his return. If you do fear his return, then it's because you've got a conscience problem here and you know at some level that you're not doing what he would have you do. So in this sense, fear is a fear of judgment as opposed to fear what the world can do to you because your home is not ultimately here, your home is ultimately with him. Two different contexts. And what this says is if you are doing what God would have you do, you are walking in love as he would have walked, then you need not be afraid. So verse 19, we love because he first loved us. Notice we love. It doesn't say we love him. King Jimmy is we love him because he first loved us. And there's no note in either one. So I'm not sure what the sense is here. I kind of like it better without the him because this has all been talking about the love that we shed abroad in the world. I'm not arguing with either translator because I'm not competent to do that. I'm simply saying in the light of what we've been saying, I kind of like this one better. So we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So in context, I like it better without him. I'm not competent to make that decision and there's no note that there's two different Greek manuscripts, so these are two different translators' opinions. But if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And what he's saying there is it is entirely possible to invent God in your own image. You read the Bible and you see all of the stuff the Bible says about this God and what you've done is you have interpreted the God of the Bible in your own image. What then comes about is you say, oh, I love God, which is to say, I love this concept of God that I have developed, quote, in my own image, unquote. And what John is saying here is if you don't love your brother who you've actually seen, then don't give me this nonsense that you say you love God that you haven't ever seen. Can't do that. If you can't love the local, there's no way that you can genuinely love the ethereal who you have no actual experience with. You've just formed this notion, this romantic notion in your head of what God is and you've fallen in love with that romantic notion as opposed to who God actually is. Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Messiah has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves whomever has been born of Him. So if you love the Father you should also love those who are born of Yeshua, are born of the Father. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, 
And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Yeshua is the Son of God? All of this is one long argument. And you've got sort of two things going on. Thing one is, who is this guy, Yeshua? And then thing two is, what is your relationship to the people in the world? And what he's saying is, the example of the love of God, which is to say the blessings he's bestowed upon us and his sending his son, should be sufficient for you then to turn around and show that same love to your brothers. If you keep his commandments and you show that kind of love to your brothers, then you need not fear his return. One other thing, we talked before that this is one long defense of the Torah. And so we look at verse 3 in chapter 5. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Whose commandments? God's. Remember, Yeshua says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And there are lots and lots of people in the Sunday church who say, I'll keep his commandments. Okay? What John is saying here is, you've got to keep God's commandments. And oh, by the way, God's commandments are not burdensome. And he says similar things other places in the letter. So it is in fact the case that what John is teaching is you need to walk according to Torah. Earlier it says, if you love him, you've got to do what he did. And he walked according to Torah. So all of this is a ringing defense of Moses because Moses gave us the word of God, gave us the commandments of God, and Yeshua didn't change any of them. What Yeshua did is he duked it out with the Pharisees because the Pharisees had changed them. So what Yeshua was arguing with the Pharisees about were the commandments of men, not the commandments of God.